Good morning. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, all good? Excellent. Thank you. All right, well, it's a privilege to be up here this morning and sharing with you in the riches of God's words. Our passage really is 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, but by way of introduction, I want to start by reading a, a passage also written by Peter, 2 Peter 3.10. There, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. A day is coming in which this world will be engulfed in flame and burned up. The sin-tainted, curse-laden world will be no more. This isn't a destroying fire or an annihilating fire, it's a purifying fire. A few verses later in verse 13, Peter says that we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God is going to take this world, he's going to burn it away, and he's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth, untainted by sin, untainted by corruption, untainted by evil. And that moment will be the climax of history. Every second of time, starting with let there be light, is building towards the day when Christ returns, when the world is judged, when sin is eradicated, and when the church begins eternity with her beloved. Everything is building towards that day. And Peter, for his part, in 1 Peter, is laser-focused on that day. And repeatedly in this book, he calls us to be as well. Just a sampling of a couple uh, examples. We're supposed to live joyous lives of love because of that day. When we're persecuted, we're supposed to respond with blessings and not curses because of that day. We are daily to be prayerful and sober-minded because of that day. Elders are supposed to provide loving oversight of the church because of that day. And that's to be their motivation. It's also to be their message. It's not an overstatement to say that Peter wants us to orient our entire lives around the return of Christ and the glory that will be brought to believers when he comes. The Christian life should be characterized by an eager, joyous expectation or hope for the future. And that hope should inform how we think, how we feel, how we plan, and what we do. And it's this hope that we're going to look at this morning as we turn to our text. Now, my sermon outline is fairly simple, deceptively simple. There's three bullets. Um, they all end with uh, uh, of our hope. The first one is the nature of our hope. I'll give them to you now. The nature of our hope. The nature of our hope. And so in this, in this first bullet, we're going to spend some time examining what this hope is that we as Christians are looking forward to. And we are going to see that it is an absolutely Christ-centered hope. After that, our second point will be the certainty of our hope. The certainty of our hope. And there we will see that this hope is guaranteed, it is secured, it is purchased, it is done. And finally, our third point is the outworking of our hope. The outworking of our hope, which is a fancy way of saying application. Um, after we understand what the hope is, after we understand that it is guaranteed, We'll spend some time talking about how this hope should inform how we spend our days here on this earth. So with that, let me ask God for grace this morning, and then I'll read a passage again, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for this opportunity to see the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts and minds would be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that this hope would touch every aspect of our lives, and I pray first and foremost that in it Christ would be exalted. Grant me grace to be faithful to your word, and may hearts and minds be open this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so our passage, one more time, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So point one, what is, what is this hope that we have? What is this hope that believers have? I've already hinted at it. It's fairly straightforward. In fact, Peter says it in the end of verse 5. Um, it, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's ultimately talking about what will happen to Christians at Jesus' second coming. That's, that's the point of this text. But what's instructive for us is how Peter talks about it. There is tremendous value in unpacking Peter's words here because they are filled with meaning. So with the advance warning that this gets pretty dense, um, we should jump in. So after a statement of praise, Peter begins verse 3 by saying that God has mercifully caused us to be born again. Literally, God begat us again. But then he says that we have been born again to a living hope. That word to here signifies results. So we're born again, and the result is that we now have a living hope. Now, pausing for a second, the, the word living is a very odd adjective to attach to hope. Um, you know, in what sense is hope living? Is this, is this figurative language? Is this uh, some first century way of saying that hope doesn't stop, it doesn't die? In what sense is our hope living? And then Peter goes on uh, to tie everything to Jesus' resurrection. This all happens through Jesus' resurrection. And that, that clause there, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, attaches both to our born again and to our having a living hope. Uh, one more quick observation as we go through this. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Notice it's not the beginning of a new sentence. It's the continuation of the sentence from verse 3. Uh, notice also that it starts with another two. It's not a result word. So we're born again to a living hope, and we're born again to an inheritance. And the way Peter constructs this sentence is, is, is meant to point to us that this is the same thing. It's, it's, it's a, the same thing being talked about in two different ways. In fact, if you just cut out the phrase resurrection from the dead and read it straight through, you get, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, comma, to an inheritance. So he's putting these things in parallel to tell us that it's really the same thing. So we're, we're born again, we have this hope, we're an inheritance, and somehow this living hope um, is all tied to Jesus' resurrection. So what does this mean? Um, how do these weighty concepts fit together? And to answer that question properly, we have to understand that Peter is making an assumption. He is assuming that his readers understand what is probably the most central, important theological concept in the New Testament, and that is union with Christ. He's assuming everyone who hears this understands that's what he's talking about here. So to do justice to our text, I want to pause for a quick second and just talk about what union with Christ is, and then we'll come back to 1 Peter and kind of show you how that, how that bears on our text. So what is union with Christ? Here's the definition that I'd give. All those that God will save are fundamentally and unchangeably made a part of Christ such that his reality becomes our reality. All those that God will save are fundamentally and unchangeably made a part of Christ, such that his reality becomes our reality. This concept is everywhere in the New Testament. 
One of my favorite and I think clearest examples is Galatians 2.20. There Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What Paul is saying is this. This isn't me anymore. The, the animating life in this body is not Paul anymore. It is Jesus Christ. So the concept is I'm one with Christ. We're made a part of Christ. We share in Christ. All those that God will save are fundamentally and unchangeably made a part of Christ such that his reality becomes our reality. And every aspect in the New Testament, every aspect of our salvation, all of the saving benefits that Jesus secures for us are applied to us by virtue of our union with him. So a couple of examples. How is it that we are forgiven? Well, we know how Jesus accomplished it, right? He went to the cross as our substitute. And when he did that, he didn't die for his sin. He didn't die for sin in general. He died for our sins. He died for for my sins. Every sin that I have committed, am committing, and will commit was applied to Jesus on the cross such that I can say with Paul that Jason Kenney was crucified with Christ. But that work is applied to me through my participation in Jesus' death. God causes me to be united to Jesus in the death that he died, and thus the death that Jesus died for me is applied to me. Same thing with righteousness. How is it that we're righteous before God? Does God sort of just squint and pretend that we're righteous? Does he have a, a tape of our lives and just edit out the bad parts? No. There would be no good parts. Uh, that's, that's kind of the problem. No, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And because we are part of Christ, because we are united to Christ, the life he lived 2,000 years ago was counted as ours. That is how we become righteous before God. His sinless existence, his sinless life is our sinless life. How are we sanctified? How is it that we become more and more and more like Christ? John 15, 4, Jesus says that as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Our transformation flows from Jesus. It's only by being made a part of Christ that we experience any change in our lives at all. There's another great passage in the New Testament that speaks to kind of all of this wrapped together as one, and it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I'm sorry. Yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> it is by God's doing that we are in Christ. That's the language of union. And that he has become for us wisdom for God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus becomes these things for us. We are in him fundamentally and unchangeably, and we share in his reality. So that is the 30-second version of union with Christ. Um, how does this apply back to 1 Peter? Well, let's, let's go through the passage again. Let's go through and answer our questions. Remember, Peter starts with being born again. God caused us to be born again. Regeneration, being born again, being born from above, new life, it all means the same thing. It's God imparting life to spiritually dead rebels. But what actually happens? Well, we're united to Christ and we share in his resurrected life. It's Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer we who live, but the resurrected Christ lives in us. We start our new lives through the power of Jesus' resurrected life. Now, Peter also talks about having a living hope. Um, Why does he describe it as a living hope? Because our hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus Christ himself, the living Christ himself. So how does that work? How is Jesus our hope? And again, how does this tie back to his resurrection? 
Well, the answer is that we don't just share in Jesus' resurrected life. We also share in Jesus' resurrection itself. His reality is our reality, right? Well, as he has been raised from the dead, we too share in that resurrection. We share in it, we participate in it, and we benefit from it. And this is exactly, the exact parallel is Romans 6. Paul talks about the same concept there, and I'm paraphrasing and summarizing, but he says that we walk in newness of life. We are freed from the dominion of sin. We are now able to be obedient. We are now able to love God and love our brothers. Why? Because we have, quote, been raised with Christ. Through our sharing in Jesus' resurrected life and our participation in Jesus' resurrection itself, we have become new beings entirely. We are new creations. We are not what we once were. We are something new, something different, something better. We started our life being joined to Christ in his resurrected life, and we live right now sharing in the power of Christ's resurrection in our daily lives. This is the hope part. God isn't done with us yet. There is still something that he is yet to do. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was not just resurrected, he was exalted and he was glorified by God. But we have not experienced that yet. That's what's future for us. We share in his resurrection that he has received in part so far. What we're waiting for is for God to finish his work in our lives. Our hope for the future is the consummation, the completion of our union with the living Christ and getting to share in the fullness of his resurrected life. Right now, we are living in the down payment, the down payment of what God has done. We get the rest when he returns. So when Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope, what he's doing is he's bookending the Christian life. He's bookending the Christian life. Our new birth is the start of it, and what happens when Jesus returns is the completion of it. And Jesus' resurrection is key to the whole process. We start our Christian life sharing in the power of his resurrected life. We are made new creations by initially participating in his resurrection, and we are waiting for him to return to finish the job and to cause us to share in the fullness of his resurrected, glorified existence. And that's what Peter is talking about here in these three verses. Now, if you're tracking with me, and I hope you are, I think the next question is, what exactly does this mean? What, what, are, we, what are we expecting? If we're going to say that we're going to share in Jesus' exalted life, we're going to share in his fullness, his exaltations, our exaltation, what does this actually mean practically? What will happen to us? And there are four things, at least four things, that the New Testament says will happen to us when Christ returns. Number one, we will share in Jesus' physical existence. So I'm going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 4. As I do that, notice the language of union and notice the parallels to the, the first Peter here. Paul there says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. So when he comes back and we see the glory of his revelation, we ourselves will be revealed with him. We will share in his exalted state when he returns. And that includes his resurrected body. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks a great deal about the resurrection, but towards the end of the chapter, he spends some time giving descriptors of what this resurrected body is going to be like. Um, it will be an imperishable body. It will be raised in glory. It will be raised in power. It is qualitatively better than the physical forms that we have here now. It'll still be a physical body. We'll still eat. We'll still drink. Um, based on what happened to Jesus, you know, we will probably still look the same. Jesus still had his scars. Um, it, it appears it's going to be us, but in an exalted form. So we're going to share in Jesus' physical existence. Second, we are going to share in his sinlessness. Our bodies of sin and death will be removed and we will no longer have sinful natures to draw us away from God in rebellion and idolatry. Third, we will get to share in his position. So 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, this one's always fascinating to me. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Again, see the language of union. But then he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. In Genesis, Adam should have had dominion over all the earth without dying. That was the original created intent. When he sinned and he messed it up, what God is doing in Jesus Christ is restoring that original picture, restoring it and amplifying it, restoring it and exalting it. And so Jesus, as Adam was supposed to, will reign over all creation. As we are united to Christ, we will get to share in that reign. We will share in his dominion over creation. Finally, and probably most importantly, we will share in Jesus' fellowship. So 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, the apostle there says, Beloved, it, is, it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We don't fully grasp what it's going to be like when Christ returns. We kind of get the box, we get the outline, but we don't have all the details. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be able to eternally see and enjoy God in ways that we cannot now due to the natural limitations of these bodies and our lingering sin. The chief joy of heaven is getting to be in perfect fellowship with our beloved. So we'll have new, perfect bodies, undying bodies. We will exist without sin. We will share in his reign, and we will exist in the sweetest and fullest possible fellowship with our beloved. And that is our hope, and it is a glorious, glorious future. It is also a guaranteed one. So I keep saying in my definition of union that we are fundamentally and unchangeably made a part of Christ. And the reason for it is because what Peter says is in verses 4 and 5. So this is our second point this morning, the certainty of our hope. In verses 4 and 5, Peter begins to call our attention to the fact that this hope is certain and secure. Now, I probably don't need to say it, but I'm going to. A hope that could happen is not nearly as good as a hope that will happen. Um, so it's very, very, very good for us that Peter doesn't stop in verse 3 and he goes into verses 4 and 5. So we said at the beginning that Peter transitions into the language of inheritance. And there's, there's a couple reasons why he does that, partly because the word inheritance is laden with Old Testament meaning. But I think the primary reason why he does it is because it's a vehicle to show us, again, that our hope is bought, secured, paid for, done. 
So think about what an inheritance would have meant in those days. An inheritance in those days meant, uh, let's, say, let's say my dad owned a big tract of land. And on that land, I had a house, we had animals, uh, we, we generated profit from that land, we lived off the animals, we sold the animals. That land would be my inheritance. That land would be my inheritance. Now, if my father gambled it away, if my father failed to defend it from robbers, if my father was lazy and let it go to rot and go fallow and squandered it, and we had to sell portions of it off, I would have a pretty terrible inheritance. Well, unlike that hypothetical father, we have a father who is able to perfectly preserve our, inher our inheritance, our hope. Notice the adjectives that Peter uses in verse 4. Uh, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. These words have some overlap and meaning between them, but in essence, they mean eternal, incorruptible, and perfect. Our inheritance isn't something that may or may not be available. It isn't something that can be mismanaged. It isn't something that is subject to change, to failure, or to corruption. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. And our inheritance couldn't fade or change or be devalued any more than the eternal God could himself change. Moreover, notice that Peter says it is being kept in heaven for us. The word kept there refers to something, someone guarding something. No one is coming in and plundering and taking this inheritance from us. No outside force can take this inheritance away from us. We can't even take it away from ourselves. The story of the prodigal son, when Jesus gave that parable, he asked for half of his inheritance. What that would have meant is that father would have gone and sold half his animals, half his, his land, and he would have given the monetary value of that to his son. And his son in that story went away and gambled the whole thing and he lost it. We don't have that risk, not because we're so good, not because we're great, but because God isn't just guarding our inheritance, he's guarding us. Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Take a good look at what's being guarded in verse 5. It's not the inheritance, it's us. He is guarding us through faith. He is zealously protecting us keeping us faithful. That's what the phrase through faith there refers to. He's not protecting us to the extent that we believe. He's not protecting us because we believe. He is protecting us by keeping us believing. If my future hope depended on me, I would be absolutely in trouble. My future is secured precisely because it doesn't depend on me. Looked another way, our salvation is nothing more than God taking sinners and making them Christ-like day by day until he finishes the job at his return. And Peter's point here in verses 4 and 5 is that we can rest assured that he will finish that job. That what we are waiting for will be there, more glorious and more wonderful than we can imagine. And so it becomes our privilege and our obligation to believe this, to trust that it will happen, and to live lives expectantly waiting for it to occur and to live lives worthy of it. Which is a great segue into our third point, which is the outworking of our hope. So again, fancy word for application. How do we live this out? Um, now, I do want to call your attention to what Peter says at the beginning, or what I said Peter said at the beginning, uh, namely that he, he calls us to, to live and act in certain ways because of this hope. Paul does too, repeatedly in his letters. In fact, the New Testament frames the Christian life really as 
waiting for and living worthy of what the Lord will do when he returns for his people. So we could spend a lot of time talking about how we should be living worthy and waiting for Christ's return. But we have time for two. Um, And I want to start the first one in the same place that Peter did. So the first application point here really is heartfelt praise and joy. Heartfelt praise and joy. I skipped over it deliberately, but verse 3 really begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a statement of praise. And, And based upon what we've seen this morning, we are a people who have a lot to be thankful for. We can praise God for saving us when we were so utterly and completely undeserving. Again, he saved us according to his great mercy in verse 3. We can praise God for a God who saved us so completely. In Christ, we have a holy, complete Savior. There is nothing that we need that Christ has not secured or accomplished for us. And we can praise God for saving us so abundantly. It's one thing to save us from our sins, it's one thing to be merciful to us, but it is something else entirely to unite us to Christ and let us share in his fullness and his exaltation. So the first and foremost right response of our hearts is absolutely praise. But second, and this is the larger point of 1 Peter, the second application that's critical for us is to adopt a future-focused perspective. We need to adopt a future-focused perspective. A couple verses later, in verse 13, Peter says, Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God really means for us to anchor our very lives in this future grace. In fact, the 30-second version, Christians are supposed to be a people who look back on the cross with joy and gratitude and who look forward to Christ's return with an eager expectation. And that is Christianity in a sentence. That is what we're supposed to be doing. And empowered by those two great truths, we should therefore be able to suffer anything, give everything, and love unconditionally. So going back to some of the things that Peter said, how do we bless and not curse when we're persecuted? How do we risk relationships and reputations and evangelize our friends and families and neighbors? How do we give sacrificially of our time and our money and count it joy? How does that happen? It happens because we recognize that compared to our future, This world is nothing. It's nothing. Now, please don't misunderstand. Having a future-centric perspective is not the same thing as saying that nothing here matters. It's not the same thing as saying that it is wrong to enjoy the blessings that God has given us in this life. What it is, is about giving the glory and the joy of what the Lord will do when he returns. It's due weight in our lives. And if you're anything like me, this is hard. This is very, very hard. It is easy to live in the here and now. But we can't. We have to be a people who actively and joyfully look forward to the future if we are ever going to properly use what the Lord has given us now for his glory's sake. Blessings such as freedoms, opportunities, time, money, So the big question before all of us this morning as we go through this text is, is do we have that future-focused perspective? And so in the few minutes that I have, or at least the few minutes that I think that I have, um, I want to ask a couple questions that I think will help us answer that. You'll notice, um, however, as I go through these, that all of these questions have to do with our life in the church. 
There's a reason for that. The reason being that if we know that God's ultimate purpose for us is to bring us, or to come back from us, come back for us, and spend eternity with our beloved in the sweetest and fullest possible fellowship, then it stands to reason that the priority of our lives, again, should be to live worthy of that future and to help our brothers and sisters do the same. So if we're going to focus on any application at all this morning, I want to focus on whether or not that is our priority. So some questions to consider. I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to ask. Um, but the first one, are we, are we joyously awaiting our Savior's return such that we want to and actively prioritize helping our fellow believers do the same? When we spend time with other believers, how often do the conversations turn towards how people are doing spiritually? And I don't mean dissecting the latest imperfectly crafted tweet or debating some fine point of theology. Those things are fine. They have their place. I'm not, I'm not slandering those. But how often, when we're with other believers, do our conversations turn into humble, transparent discussions of where we're at and where they're at? How about who we gather with in the first place? It is really natural. It is human nature for like to attract like. You look at your, your friends, you tend to have friends with or, uh, people that are, have similar interests, likes, dislikes, same or similar socioeconomic conditions, family situations. It's hard living with people whose life doesn't match yours. But the church is literally a place that, but for Christ, we would never be together. So when we think about the people that we interact with in, in Veritas, are, are, are we finding ourselves interacting primarily with people who, absent Christ, we would hang out with anyways? Or are we inviting believers increasingly into our lives? We can really deceive ourselves that we are great lovers of our brothers and sisters when we're really just great lovers of our friends. So where are we at? Where are we at? If someone looked at our schedules, our calendars, would they see anything that differs from our unbelieving neighbors? Would they see something that prioritized opportunities for fellowship and ministry? Do we spend money? Do we give knowing that while there is nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts, that there is a better and more lasting inheritance waiting for us? Where are our fiscal priorities at? I've asked myself these questions this week. I asked them last night. I asked them this morning. And um, as I've thought about my own answers, I am very grateful that we have such a sufficient Savior in Jesus. In conclusion, I feel like I have to say those words because those are Eric's words, but in conclusion, <laughs> I have, uh, I have two, two final exhortations this morning. First, just, just very practically, and this is to my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room this morning, I, I would encourage everyone to make it a deliberate point to try to redeem these shelter-in-place orders that we're all laboring under. Let them serve as a sort of soft reset for us. Most people's lives effectively stopped when everything else shut down. But as things open up again, we have an opportunity to decide how we're going to restart them. We can go right back to where we were, and we can make changes, somewhere in between. If the Holy Spirit is convicting anyone of anything this morning, in 
any of the areas we talked about, I just would encourage you not to let this opportunity to redefine what your life looks like on a daily basis go to waste. Second, if you are here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, I really am hoping you've heard just how great a Savior he is. And I would plead with you this morning to repent and put your faith in him. As I said in the introduction, the world will end. Jesus will return and every knee will bow before him. For those in Christ, it will be us bowing in reverence and joy. For those who are not in Christ, it will be in the terror of judgment. So insofar as it's still called today, repent and put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful at the marvelous complexity of your salvation of us. We are so grateful that we get to share in Christ in ways that are, are beyond our comprehension, beyond the comprehension, it seems, even of your inspired writers of the New Testament. We thank you, Lord, that you have painted us a picture of a glorious future, that we know that you are coming back. We know that you will, you will shower us with the grace that you have promised. I pray, Father, that our lives would live, our lives would be lived worthy of that, and that you'd be glorified in them daily. May we be a people who eagerly look forward to your return and live worthy of it in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.